American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to learn to pray. We are so busy that when we slow down to pray, we find it uncomfortable. We prize accomplishments and production, but prayer is nothing but talking with God. It feels useless as if we are wasting our time. Every bone in our body screams, get to work. When we aren't working, we are used to being entertained. Television, internet, video games, cell phones, social media make free time as busy as our work. When we do slow down, we slip into a stupor. Exhausted by the pace of life, we veg out in front of a screen or with earplugs. If we try to be quiet, we are assaulted by what C.S. Lewis called the kingdom of noise. Everywhere we go, we hear background noise. If the noise isn't provided for us, we can bring our own via iPad or iPod. Even our church services, we have the same restless energy. There is little space to be still before God. We want our money's worth, so something should be always be happening. We are uncomfortable with silence. One of the subtlest hindrances to prayer is probably the most pervasive. In the broader culture and in our churches, we prize intellect, competency, and wealth. Because we do life without God, praying seems nice but unnecessary. Money can do what prayer does, and it is much quicker and less time-consuming. Our trust in ourselves and in our talents makes us structurally independent of God. As a result, the exhortation to pray doesn't really stick. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, the text simply says this, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed, went out to a desert place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. You know, one of the challenges of life is that you and I probably both know that the first thing to disappear in a Christian's life when life gets busy is our prayer life. We've compensated for it because the way we fix it is we just sort of pray on the go. We multitask everything. We pray when we're driving, we pray when we're texting, we pray when we're having conversations with people. And we're pretty content with that because the Bible says pray without ceasing, so we think we fulfilled the the, the spiritual requirement to be in conversation with God. And yet, coming through COVID in our life, we see people struggling with more internal chaos than they ever have. And this God who is supposed to be the God of peace seems relatively absent from the turmoil that's stirring in our heart. In fact, the turmoil often tends to overwhelm the reality of the God of peace. Only you know your own personal pace and your situation, but I would suspect that one of the great dangers for all of us is that our prayer lives can slip a disc really easily in the fast pace of life. This morning, I want to remind you that the second person of the Godhead, who would have had a perfect sense of unity and framework, who did nothing on his own initiative, who would have had perfect access and clarity in terms of a relationship with God, who probably, above anybody who walks on earth, didn't need to make time to pray, is the person who models for us about what it means and how important it is to pray. It's dangerous because I know that Sitting there, you're probably already going, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, we're going to talk about making time for prayer, and yet, Brad, you don't understand my schedule, because it starts at 
five in the morning and it runs till 12 o'clock at night. I don't have time for it. I mean, I do my best to microtask it into life and catch a glimpse of it when I, at noon, but it's just hard. I would like to think that we're busier than Jesus. I don't know if that's a badge of honor or condemnation. But as we walk through this text, we will discover that often our motivation for prayer diminishes. Although there's been lots of things that have happened in our culture recently that might just get your attention enough to start praying. Certainly the war in Ukraine would get your attention. The mass shootings that are, have gone on in our country, especially with children, ought to get your attention to pray. The uh, President Biden just signed in a brand new legislation with gun laws to try to curb sort of the massacre of children and people. He signs laws, maybe we should pray. The earthquake in Afghanistan that killed thousands of people shows even that our planet is sort of coming apart at the seams and it's rattled by the reality of the curse that God placed upon it and gives us obviously more provocation to consider that we ought to be a people of prayer. It probably begged the question for me not to mention the fact that the US Supreme Court this Friday reversed Roe versus Wade. And, and the challenges of that is deep and wide where you've got people on one hand screaming that we're stepping back into the dark ages because we are knocking off a president a precedent that we've had for 50 years. And the other side that's celebrating that finally we're gonna start protecting unborn children. I, I don't know if you've got any reasons to pray, but I can't think of a reason not to be praying. And yet the reality of most of our lives is that prayer, as we, Paul Miller would suggest, feels like a waste of time, because I got stuff I gotta do. Most churches struggle with having some kind of corporate prayer time on a regular basis because it's boring and uninteresting. I can do this at home. And so we struggle with this whole avenue of what it really means to be a, a people of prayer and on our knees before a holy God. And I wanna publicly thank our, our prayer team that gathers on a weekly basis in this building to be praying for everything from our global partners to our leadership to you as families. But the struggle for all of us is we don't have time. And as we begin to think about this whole process, I want you to consider the fact that the second person of the Godhead consistently made time to be in the presence of his Father. I don't know what that does for you, but I'm kind of like toying with the idea that if it's good enough for Jesus, it might just be good enough for us. Well, we'll see. I, I want to talk about a couple of things before I actually get into sort of the priorities of prayer that Jesus, I think, experienced, because we have to remember that even though he's the second person of the Godhead, he is the divine son of God, he limited himself to operate on this earth very much the way you and I do. We tend to sort of glorify Jesus in a way that I think goes beyond what he chose to limit himself is, is that he would clothe himself in flesh and blood and while he didn't have a sinful nature that he was tempted in Matthew chapter four in the wilderness and, and he, had to, he could suffer 
and experienced hunger and exhaustion, and he got weary. He got frustrated with the Pharisees and the scribes. He went through a lot of the different experiences that we have with people. And so prayer wasn't just doing, he wasn't doing prayer just to go, here's something you should do that's spiritual. I think he did it because he loved his father. And he wasn't going to engage anything in life, as John 5 would indicate. He didn't do anything on his own initiative. He was so connected to his heavenly father that every day became an outflowing of his communion and his intimacy with God and knowing the father's will for everyday activities. And Mark chapter 1 would indicate that Jesus saw that as so important, he got up early in the morning, actually very early in the morning, went out to a place by himself so that he could spend time in this intimate, deep sense of fellowship with his Father. Some of us struggle to chat with our spouses in any meaningful way, much less God. And so as we step into this, I want you to notice at least the pattern of prayer. And one of the things that strikes me about is I look at different snapshots of Jesus praying and where it's mentioned in the scriptures, and there's a variety of them, is that Jesus made it a priority to go off to pray after being with the crowds and often before strategic ministry. There are a number of passages, but you need to notice even in Mark, there's a pattern in terms of what Jesus does. He does ministry in the, to the crowds. He's out in public. He's in the synagogue, and he's not only healing an individual of being demon-possessed, but he's teaching and he's instructing. He's actively engaged with people. Then he withdraws to Simon's house, and there he's faced with more ministry responsibility because they come to him and say, listen, his mother-in-law is sick. Can you do this? I don't know about you, but you know, depending on... Your, your, your commitment to serving others, sometimes it feels like it doesn't matter whether you're in the public forum, at home, whether you're trying to take vacation or not, everyone's knocking on your door to say, hey, can you help do something? And we get tired of it. I don't know of anyone who probably could get more tired of it than Jesus because it just seemed to be a, a relentless sense of people saying, I want something from you. I'm sure most of us don't have near the patience Jesus had at some point, we get tired of everybody wanting something. And we're not quite sure how to handle that. But Jesus, after he does a long night of ministry, and we'll touch base on that on a moment, but Jesus made it this priority. Matthew chapter 14, just before he sends the disciples out across the Sea of Galilee, it says, after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And evening came and he was there alone. I suspect that he sent people home and dismissed the, the disciples to go across before the sunset. And then he went up on himself and spent a considerable amount of time by himself. And he says it was praying. And he did that till it was evening when the, when the sun's starting to go down. And Mark chapter 6 basically reiterates the same statement. And after he had taken leave of the crowds, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. See, the problem for us is we hate being alone. And sometimes we struggle with how do we pray. And Jesus wasn't afraid of either of those. He wasn't afraid of being alone. There's all kinds of people who are terrified of being alone. 
Much more of us have become so addicted to having noise in our head, it's not just being alone, but we have no idea how to deal with silence. And so it doesn't matter what we're doing. We have machines that play white noise when we sleep so we can actually get to sleep. We turn the TV and the radio on and the iPad and our phones and we're playing four things at the same time because we don't know what to do with the silence. And it ought to challenge us a little bit is how do we hear the voice of God when there's so much noise going on? How do we actually listen? How do we actually grasp the sense of the mind of Christ? Luke chapter 6, verse 12 and 13, just before he chose his disciples, in in these days he went on the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to the Father. And when that day came, he called the, uh, and when day came, he called his disciples and chose from the twelve whom he called apostles. Luke chapter 5. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and he healed their infirmities, but he would often withdraw to desolate places and pray. I'm convinced that the second person of the Godhead, the person I would least think needs to make time to talk to the Father because he's got this automatic connection no matter what he's doing, he can pray without ceasing, makes time to get alone so that he can pray. And so, I want you to notice the time frame. Now this is always a touchy subject because, but I think it's worth noting. Jesus made it a priority to begin his day in the presence of the Father. You can see this in a number of different places. He prayed at night for sure. I suspect we're getting a snapshot into a routine that Jesus had on a regular basis even though we don't, we have enough text to know that this is what he did, but Boy, did he do this every day or three times a week? We always love the numbers to make sure that we hit the spiritual mark. I suspect Jesus had very different motivation for it than often we do. But his time is that it not only says early in the morning, it says very early in the morning. Between the sunset and the sunrise. It reminds me of Psalm chapter five. Do you remember? Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning, give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you. Psalm 88, 13, I, O Lord, cry to you, in the morning my prayer comes to you. I remember a long time ago, I was kind of convinced of, that I needed to start my day with prayer. So I used to carve out time and I get up early and I used to carve out about 90 minutes where I'd spend time just praying and reading the word. It was in many ways life-changing. There was just something unique about the fact that when I'm beginning my day, it seemed pretty obvious to me and somewhat common sense that, listen, before I start engaging the day, I should talk to the Lord about it, shouldn't I? I mean, that only made sense to me and so I did it, but as time has gone on, I've noticed that's kind of whittled down to almost nothing. Because I do really spiritual things, like I like to get up and do a workout in the morning because I don't have time to do it in the evenings anymore. So I'll get up really early and go make time to do a workout, but God, when I'm done there, then I gotta get to the office because if I don't get there at eight, I'll never get everything that I need done there either. And all of a sudden, but, but it wasn't that I wasn't spiritual because when I drove to the club to do my workout, I'd pray on the way. So I learned how to multitask while I'm driving. Except when I went, missed a, you know, a squirrel or a gopher run across the road, then we had to halt for a minute just to make sure we didn't kill the squirrel. 
The whole point of being in the club is to have conversations with individuals and try to have spiritual conversations. It's kind of fun because there's a young guy from Ukraine who has been working out and I got to meet them, found out that he's a Christian, goes to a church in St. Louis Park, and he's getting married. He got married yesterday. I always remember him because he reminds me of Jack Garvin. He looks just like Jack. And he's got this really cool, and his, I was there one Saturday and his fiance was there and I met her and her name's Anya. And so two days ago when I was in the club, he was there, I said, hey, you're getting married this weekend, aren't you? And he says, yeah, we got a lot of work to do, but we're ready. And I said, would you mind if I prayed for you? And he kind of looked at me like, okay. So right there in the club, I prayed for him. And it was pretty cool. He, when I finished, he had this big smile. He went, wow, thanks, man. So I can justify that the reason I go to the club is because I'm trying to meet people and have spiritual conversations. And so I maybe don't need to spend time in the morning alone without any noise, without any distractions, because I'm multitasking pretty well. But I came to this passage this week, and I kind of went, you know, I've got time to do a workout, but I'm not making any significant time to just hang out with Jesus. I'm multitasking God into my workspace rather than spending time in his space. So this week, I made a new commitment to reorganize my schedule on the mornings, and so now I get up at 10 to 5, and I spend from 5 to 6 in time just praying and being in the Word and spending time in the presence of my Father. Then I grab my stuff and run off the club or go downstairs and beat myself up doing workout, not, you know, whatever. But it doesn't do any good to talk about this stuff and not make any adjustments in your life. We can give as much lip service to the idea that we pray, but often for many of us, we know that we, our prayer has come down to the point that God's now a concierge. We just pray when we need something from him or when we need him to fix things. We don't pray for this deep sense of intimacy and fellowship and knowing the mind of Christ and listening to how he wants to speak into our day. We've become horrendously distracted and the best that we can do now is fit God into our schedule rather than him determine what our schedule ought to be. And so Jesus gets up in the morning and he goes to pray. I remember in the ebb and flow of this, you always get into these conversations and I had someone tell me one time, he says, well why don't you just do your devotional time and prayer at noon? I said, well, that would make sense. The only problem with that is why would I live half my day without having first talked to Jesus about it? I just had a hard time with that. Other people are probably more skilled and know how to pray not only through the rest of the day but the next morning, so, but I, I'm just not very good at that. And so it, it becomes a challenge to not just pray without ceasing, but Jesus seemed to think that it was important to get away by himself and carve out time where he can just spend time in the presence without the radio going, without the iPads, without the social media stuff crying in the background. And the problem that we struggle with is that we all say we don't have time, which you know is a lie, right? I had, uh, usually because a number of people know that I work out, I've had people do, man, I, I wish I had the time to do a workout, like you do. I'm kinda like, I don't know how much, how more condescending that can sound. I'm doing really important things over here. I wish I had enough spare time where I could do this workout stuff so that I could stay in shape. But the reality is we all have exactly the same time. 
You and I both know that we will always do the things that we really value. It's not whether we have enough time, we will always do the stuff that we really value. And, and the reality of things is, hey, I like to work out so I make time for it. But when we don't make time for God, we're saying something about what we value or maybe what we don't value. Because we're not willing to set aside some things that we think are important, but and in an essence saying this is more valuable than spending time with God. And so the challenge for all of us is not whether we have time, but whether are we willing to make time. Not because Brad says so, I'm still trying to figure it out myself as I tried to be honest about it this morning. But I look at it and I go, I look at what Jesus did and I'm kind of like, it always sort of pokes at me. Why in the world would Jesus need to take time? And I don't think he was meeting any kind of spiritual or religious quotas, like he had to pray three times a day like Daniel did. I'll I'll give you sort of the spoiler before we get there because I'm going to show it to you at the end of the service. I think he did it because he was intimately in love with his father and he wanted to know the mind of the father for everything that he was going to face. He didn't do anything on his own initiative. He wanted to be perfectly in sync with his heavenly father in every event, in every person, in every circumstance so he knew exactly what the father wanted him to do in every situation. The other piece of this is his tenacity. I've already, in a sense, drawn attention to it. The idea is that he was both intentional and extensive. We would talk about it as quality time and quantity time. We always kind of go above, you know, we always have these fights between it. Is it more important to have quality time or quantity time? Yeah, of course. But but what happens is people go, well, I don't have time, so my quality of two and a half minutes is really quality time. Now, obviously, I'm making fun of this a little bit, but I'm I'm trying to look at the text and say, what is Jesus? If he was standing here and saying, listen, I know your prayer life, and I know because of your prayer life that you really value me, but he might be saying to some of us, I know because of the busyness of your life, you don't need me. The goal is not how many times I've made time to pray. The goal is not how much success isn't measured by the number of times I pray. The the idea of success is how deeply rooted my relationship is with God. How much do I really trust him? How much does he really saturate and shape the way I think and feel on a daily basis when life is going well and I don't need him or when life hits a crisis and I desperately need him? And so there's four things that Jesus does in terms of the priority of his prayer. And I believe because he clothed himself with flesh and blood, there is applicable to us. You'll notice in Mark 1, and 35, it says, the whole city was gathered together at their front door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is the night before. After sunset, when the, when the Sabbath would have ceased, and then all these people show up at the house. So you have dinner because he healed Simon's mother-in-law. She served dinner, and then after dinner, there's a knock at the door, and there's like 30 people standing outside the door. 
So they spend the next two or three hours ministering to people and it's getting really late. And so the idea of the purpose of prayer, I believe, ends up being recovery. Jesus gets physical rest by sleeping for a short period of time. We have Fitbits now, so I can tell you that I only slept five hours and 20 minutes last night. But Jesus didn't get up early. He got up very early, which who knows? Maybe he's a four o'clock person. But he got up very early because his value was that he wanted to spend time in the presence of his father. And, and part of the reason is that he had been ministering to the crowds all evening the next night. And I don't know whether you know this or not, but people can be exhausting. Oh good, I'm glad you caught that. That's, I feel much better now. People can be exhausting as much as we love to move alongside of them, sometimes they can be super discouraging because you can give them all the help, advice, wisdom, you can encourage them all, and they just don't even listen. They'll just go do their own thing. And so people can not only be exhausting, they can be discouraging. And sometimes we can get absolutely disappointed because we pour out our lives and we serve people and come alongside of them, and it's literally like they don't even care. And I suspect Jesus experienced the full weight of that as he's dealing with the crowds. There's people who are desperate and hungry to get in his presence and to have, be touched by the power of his presence. But there's others that are going to be skeptical like he's a fraud, and we know that happens. And I suspect that part of prayer was recovery. Maybe he's probably praying about the people because I don't necessarily automatically think because God heals them of a demon or a sickness, they automatically become believers. That I think would be a mistake. So maybe he's spending time praying for the people that he touched and saying, God, I know some of these people don't really believe in me. They just want something from me to fix their problems. And so open their heart to the reality of the gospel. And so I think Jesus prayed for his own spiritual recovery, as it were. His recovery is refreshments in the presence of his Father. I think the second aspect of this is the spiritual battles that he went through. I mean, he's casting out demons. You can't do ministry without knowing that you're in a spiritual warfare. It's not about just running a nice, neat program and we accomplish it and we're good. If, if, if the heart of ministry doesn't help you take a peek into the invisible reality of Satan and his demons and the warfare that they've inflicted upon humanity and how he wants to be as the God of this world to keep people's eyes darkened to the reality of the hope of the gospel, then you're probably just running a program rather than trying to do ministry. And that can be exhausting. And so Jesus was not only dealing with people and meeting needs, but he was dealing with the spiritual battle in every single person that he met. He got some physical rest, but I think he needed spiritual rest. The second reason for prayer, I think, for Jesus was just his absolute love for relationship with the Father. And sometimes that's hard for us because it's easy not to treat God as a real person. We get the idea of treating God like a concierge because we need stuff from him. We need him to act, but sometimes that's hard because we don't always see him acting. 
So we get disappointed with him, and if you're not going to do this for me, why, what, I don't need you for anything else. But the relationship is that Jesus absolutely longed to be in fellowship and intimacy with his father. He discussed everything, I suspect he discussed everything with him. When he chose his disciples and spent all night, boy, I, I, I make this up obviously. It's like, Lord, I've got like 30 people following me. I need 12 of them. Who do, you, who do we pick? How about this one? Then the father goes, yeah, don't want that one. I, I don't know. But he didn't spend all night in prayer talking to the trees. I don't think it was just trivial pursuit stuff. They weren't just playing some game. Jesus was seeking the heart of the Father, not only in relationship, but to know his will. And so he's seeking after the, being spiritually refreshed and invigorated because we know that the Spirit of God descended upon him at his baptism, and we know that he was the one that was energizing the power to do miracles. So he had to pay attention to whom God wanted him to touch. It's a good thing that he wasn't pretty regimented on his office hours. I'm here from nine to five and after that I'm closed. But the reality of this is that I think he got in his father's presence to make sure from a human perspective, he always had his alignment, his heart and focus on eternal things and what God wanted him to do. The third purpose for this is responsibility. You'll notice that Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. The word for search is kind of like going out hunting for something. It has about this sense that there's an urgency to it and they're just like crashing the bushes and trying to find every possible way to find Jesus. There, there's, it's not panic so much as, man, we've got all these people that are looking for you, Jesus. Here's the opportunity. Because you have to remember that Jesus has touched a lot of these people by the power of God and their lives have been changed. Some of it just physically and emotionally where he's, he's healed them and he's changed the whole direction of their life. They've, they've gotten back to a normal setting so that they can live life. The word about Jesus is spread. There's all kinds of momentum and people are flocking to see Jesus. And he's, there's a ministry that's starting in this place that's gaining momentum. I mean, if it was me, it'd be like, why would you go anywhere else? Here's the opportunity of a lifetime. Here's people that are being changed and he's touching them with his words. And he's touching them by the power of Christ. This is the place that you want to start a campus and, and really do something. And they come, and the text is written in such a way they probably interrupted Jesus. They found him praying, and they said, Lord, everybody's looking for you. And in our context, we love popularity. I mean, Jesus couldn't get more popular right now with that local community. And there's momentum. People are flocking to find him. He doesn't have to go out selling anything. And so from my perspective, it'd be like, why would you pass this up? Obviously, God's at work. He's changing lives. You're impacting people. They're flocking to find you. Why would you leave that? Because I think in his prayer time, he knows that the mission of the Father is to reach all of Israel. And it's not about popularity, and it's not even about momentum, and it's not about how successful yesterday went. It's what does the Father need me to do today? And Jesus, after they find him, could easily have caved in to all the voices saying, listen, 
People are looking for you. Got more needs to meet. We've got to start a ministry here. We've got all this stuff going on here. You would be insane to leave this. And what is most necessarily, regardless of yesterday's successes, is still knowing the mind of the Father to say, what is it that I need to be doing today? And it can be very different than what he did yesterday. And so that was his responsibility, is not just to cater to what everybody else around him was saying, even his own disciples, but listening to the voice of the Father. And then the, thir- the, the last f- fourth one here is what I call reorientation. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that's why I came out. Probably why he came out of Capernaum and other places, but Jesus isn't going to stay in this place because there's a bigger mission to fulfill. It may be inconvenient because he's got to leave someplace that there's been success and, and things are growing and yet he knows that he has to move on to the bigger picture. And Jesus is not going to simply capitalize on the growing momentum where he's at. He's not going to allow himself to get contained, but he's going to fulfill the mission of the Father. This is often where churches get stuck. Wow, we see people coming and they're coming in our building. We see increased numbers and that kind of stuff, so we're good. But Jesus, when he talked to his disciples, said, you need to go and make disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, and the outermost parts of the world. And yet the danger for most churches is, well, we've got our little group and we're gonna like, just care for this group right here. And we're gonna call that success. I mean, people are coming, we're impacting people, their lives are changing. And so this reorientation, Jesus had two focuses. I'm gonna go preach And I'm sure this is very much tied to what we saw earlier in the past. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's trying to reach out to Israel to gather them back into a healthy spiritual relationship with the Father. So he's very much keyed on Israel. This isn't about the Gentiles. This is about Israel. But he's also going to allow them to be touched by the power of God to help open their eyes to the reality that God wants them in their presence. God wants them to repent and come back into relationship with him. And it it tells me that even in this situation, that Jesus had twofold. He preached the gospel, but he touched lives. I remember when we were in Chile, I went with my father-in-law to the plaza where they were going to do an evangelism meeting, and they Bring up, brought up the bus, they set up their microphones, they were all dressed in suits while everybody else was like dressed in shorts and everything else, and they just proclaimed the gospel. <laughs> and it was a little embarrassing, there was a young couple sitting on a bench doing things they probably should have been doing other places, and they were standing right there preaching the gospel. So they heard it. But we don't want to just fulfill our duty to proclaim the gospel. We want people's lives to be touched by the power of Jesus which usually requires the same thing from us that it did from Jesus, is we actually have to reach out and touch people, not just declare things to people. And so this whole reorientation was making sure that Jesus was always doing what the Father wanted, not just what the crowds begged him to do. The same is true today because we're supposed to preach the gospel 
but we also have to be touched by the power of God. The gospel changes our eternal trajectory and we need to have people in our life that need to know Jesus. And so one of the questions I want to encourage you to consider is are you willing to change your routines to go to the next place to proclaim the gospel to people that don't know Jesus? See, you're probably like me, I get into the same routine and sometimes it's going back to the same people that I know don't know Jesus so I can build relationship with them and that's great. But sometimes we get really comfortable because 90% of my friends can easily become just Christians and I just hang out with them and I just get encouragement from them. Let me ask, do you have any meaningful non-Christian friends? I mean, do you really have any real meaningful relationship with non-Christian friends? So, because we need to talk about the gospel, but they need to be touched by the power of God. I want to, uh, I have a friend of mine, his name's Brent Jordan. He's a Christian, works for Crew, lives in Tennessee. Back in about 2018, he got diagnosed with cancer. Uh, they treated him, it went away. This last year, they found out that he had a very rare form of cancer I think in his L3 spinal cord, that if they didn't deal with it, it would just metastasize and that would be the end of things. So he talked to a number of us and we've been praying for him and we've really been pleading with God, if you're willing, you can touch his life. And he got a second opinion down in uh, a hospital, I think down in Texas. And a week ago, he was supposed to go there Monday, have back surgery. What they were gonna do is they're gonna remove his vertebrae where that cancer was and they, it's, it's a little, they weren't gonna open it up from the back, they had to go from the inside because they, I think the idea is if you open it up from the outside, then it could just light the thing up and it just takes off everywhere. So they're actually gonna do the surgery through other parts of his body and suck this, but they're actually gonna take the vertebrae out and replace it with something else and then rebuild that or fuse it so that he could at some point function. Showed up Monday for the pre-surgery stuff and they went through all the tests just to make sure and the doctors came back and canceled the surgery for Tuesday because they couldn't find the cancer anywhere. And his comment to me was he says, I don't know how to steward this. And I said, yeah, I get the idea. You'll get people that'll walk away saying I'm healed and then six months later the thing comes back and it kills them and then who's right? Was God, did he really heal it or was I wrong? And I said, well, and he has the same sentiment I had. I said, you know, we always got to think about God's work in our life as a present ongoing reality right now. And I said, you can celebrate as I'll celebrate with you that the best news in the world isn't a eschatological declaration that you're healed, but the surgeons couldn't find any cancer, so they canceled it. That's a work of God. Now, our physical, being touched by God physically, usually only means a lot to the people who desperately need that touch. But it's still a touch by the power of God. But I'll tell you, if you're not touched by the Spirit of God in terms of your heart to change you to respond to the gospel, all the physical healing in the world won't change your eternal destiny being separated from God. We're gonna skip the last part, guys. We'll do it another time. But I think the reason Jesus, I think the reason Jesus went out very early in the morning 
by himself to be alone to be with the Father is because he loved his Father. And if you're not really convinced or know how to embrace God's love and, and really grasp the value of all that Christ did in dying on a cross to satisfy the wrath of God against you because of your sin and rebellion against him, Prayer may not mean anything to you because, yeah, I've trusted Jesus, but I think I've got it kind of handled on my own. And the question I want to ask you is, why would we expect anything, God to do anything through us if we don't even want to talk to him? And if I could dare say and I've shared kind of the adjustment I've made in my own life because I felt like there was a gap there. Would you mind taking a look at your prayer life and say, what's the real reality of my relationship with God? Do I really value him enough that I'm willing to make time in the midst of a busy schedule, even if it might mean getting up very early in the morning in order to make sure that I know his heart and mind for what's in front of me for the day? Because I believe there's probably nothing sadder than Christians who claim to know Jesus and never chat with him. Oh, we chat with him on the run and we multitask and we try to get him to do certain things because people need it and so on. And the Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. But do we love him enough to get alone and away from the noise to say the thing that spiritually renews and revitalizes and keeps me anchored is being alone with God, not listening to any of the other voices, so that I might know what he wants me to do, and I live for him, not just my own devices. How's your prayer life?